0: I love that song. It's one of my favorite songs. Uh, It happened to open up the Valley of Vision, a book of prayers today, and uh, this prayer was just too pertinent to that song and to this message uh, today to not come and pray it uh, with you all today. The, The prayer goes like this. I have no merit. Let the merit of Jesus stand for me. I am undeserving, but I look to thy tender mercy. I am full of infirmities, wants, sin. Thou art full of grace. I confess my sin, my frequent sin, my willful sin. All my powers of body and soul are defiled. A fountain of pollution is deep within my nature. There are chambers of foul images within my being. I have gone from one odious room to another, walked in a no-man's land of dangerous imaginations, pried into the secrets of my fallen nature." I am utterly ashamed that I am what I am in myself. I have no green shoot in me, nor fruit, but thorns and thistles. I am a fading leaf that the wind drives away. I live bare and barren as a winter tree, unprofitable, fit to be hewn down and burnt. Lord, dost thou have mercy on me? Thou hast struck a heavy blow at my pride, at the false god of self, and I lie in pieces before thee. But thou hast given me another master and Lord, thy son Jesus. And now my heart is turned towards holiness. My life speeds as an arrow from a bow towards complete obedience to thee. Help me in all my doings to put down sin and to humble pride. Save me from the love of the world and the pride of life, from everything that is natural to fallen man. And let Christ's nature be seen in me day by day. That's what we just sung about and All I Have is Christ, is the verse's transition from, from really looking at just how hopeless we are apart from Christ, but then to gloriously singing, Jesus is my life because of who he is and what he's done and what he's accomplished and what he continues to do in our lives. And so we come together and we get to sing out, Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That's really the message of Isaiah chapter 1 as well. So if you will... Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 20. Isaiah 1 1 through 20. <clears throat> Ray Ortland, in his commentary on Isaiah, he sums up the message of Isaiah in a very simple way is this, God saves sinners. We can too quickly listen and cling only to the beginning of that short sentence, God saves, without giving much thought to the deadly identity marker pronounced upon us, sinners. Scripture doesn't teach that God saves the nice people, deserving people, pleasant people, hardworking people, honorable people, well-respected people, rich people powerful people or super religious people. Scripture teaches us that God saves sinners. God saves those who need saving. God saves those who are most undeserving of salvation. In preparing for Isaiah one, confronted like I every day am, that I am wickedly self-sufficient and self-righteous. I often live in a way that says I can handle this on my own through my talents and abilities. I'm not that bad. I'm okay. God is obviously pleased to save one like myself. I'm inward facing, self focused, expecting the world to revolve around me. And I too often do not see my sin and my sinfulness for what it is. It's hideous, most unnatural to God's creation and his desires for it. For God's people, For us, if we're in Christ Jesus, who are swimming in pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, thinking of themselves too highly, Isaiah 1 comes in to level, humble, and knock us down to our knees. It gives us a better, more realistic, clearer view of self. In preparing for today, I've been reminded of uh, Luke chapter 7. Uh, for you Edgewood people, you would know that my father-in-law was always struck with, with Luke chapter 7 and the passage about the sinful woman that's forgiven in particular. <clears throat> Calling a woman a sinful woman is Scripture's nice way of saying that she's the worst kind of sinner. But my mind has always wandered to and been uh, just been set upon, fixed upon Simon the Pharisee in the story. In the passage, it's actually Simon who is involved in deadly sin. He is in a much worse spot than the sinful woman. Simon is living in the deadly sin of self-righteousness. He has the law. He is religious. He has his religious forms of worship. He keeps to his standards. He is a look-to leader in the ways of the law. And he is dead or close to it. He is blind to his own need for a Savior. So while most of us here today... We know our need for a Savior because we have repented and turned to Jesus. I fear that we are often in great danger, just like the book of Hebrews would warn us against. When is the last time you've been convicted to your knees over sin in your life? When is the last time you've then been brought up to experience taste of heaven as you see afresh the grace and love and mercy of God as displayed in Jesus his son as he is hanging on a cross precisely for your sin when is the last time you felt yourself enraptured with delight in god's love and mercy in the face of your sinfulness and neediness and i look at myself why am i so often dulled in my worship and adoration and love for god I think the reason is that even as a believer, I am tempted to venture into Simon land. I forget how much I've been forgiven, and so I love so little. I'm so self-righteous that I see little need for a Savior, and so I delight little in the love of Jesus. So those of us in Jesus, we need Isaiah chapter 1. To those of you who may not yet know Jesus, you need Isaiah chapter 1 as well. It teaches this, the end of our sin is death. Sin never delivers on its promises. And in fact, it always gives us exactly the opposite of what it promises. And so I pray that we would see with fresh eyes today our desperate state apart from Jesus. I pray that we would see his love, his grace, and his mercy displayed in his person. That we may leave today saying this together. Wow. I am infinitely worse than I can ever know, but he is infinitely better to me than I'll ever be able to comprehend. That's how good he is. So Advent, it's the celebration of the coming of Jesus into the world, inhabited by wretched, wicked, rebellious sinners. What a miracle that God saves sinners. So let's see from Isaiah 1 how big of a miracle that is. Verse 1. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he spoke concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city." If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of, your, of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Most holy God, we thank you that in your grace and your mercy, you are a God who has spoken. You are a God who communicates. You are a God who delights to reveal yourself to your people. We thank you and praise you for just the miracle that that is. What grace and what mercy that we have your word, that you would caused it, cause it to be remembered and written down for our sake so that we can know you. So, Lord God, would you bless this time through the power of your Holy Spirit, opening eyes to see you more clearly, ears to hear what you would say to us, and hearts to respond in a way that's pleasing and honoring to you. So be glorified during this time. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, amen. So in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, he comes bringing the word of the Lord to the people of Judah. They're actually in a time of of prospering uh, when Isaiah first begins his ministry to them. But in their prospering, they begin to rebel and turn away from the Lord. So for the people of Judah, exile is looming. In the future, because of God's people's continual, sustained sin against him. They were a people who had eyes, Isaiah would go on to say, but couldn't see, ears, but couldn't hear, that God was calling his people to repentance and restoration. They would continue in their sin, and God's judgment will surely come because of it. So in verse 2 and following, I think it's helpful if we look at Isaiah 1, especially 2 through 20, to imagine a courtroom-type scene. So in verse 2, in verses 2 through 4, we see this. Court is in session. It's called to by the Lord. So notice in verse 2, The Lord calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses against his people. This language is given uh, as a a reminder to keep in mind who it is that is calling the court into session. It's someone who has the power to call the heavens and the earth to hear what's going on. It's reminding us of how great and glorious the speaker is. The Lord is the creator of all things. The heavens and the earth are his. He has created them. He has formed them. He has brought all things into being through the power of his word. The stars that as we look at at night that are innumerable to us, he knows and names them all. He holds them in the palm of his hand. He holds them by the power of his word. They are dependent upon him. No man could call the heavens and the earth to account, to come and be a witness. Only a holy God whose majesty and glory and holiness are beyond our comprehension could do such a thing. And he does just that. Court is in session. The Lord, fearsome and holy, is now calling his people to account. So what does he have to say to his people as he calls the court into session? Notice in verse 2, Children, children have I reared and brought up. The Lord would call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel, to himself, not just a people that he would coldly use to accomplish his will, his purposes, and his desires in the world. He called them to be his children, He called Israel to be his children, his beloved people. Now, Israel, as his beloved people, as his called people, they were certainly called to accomplish his purposes and his will and his desires, but they would do that precisely through knowing him and being known by him. They were called to be his children, to be his people. And so he calls the courtroom into session, and his children are the ones who are going to be judged. What have his children done? Children that he has reared and brought up. Verse two, they have rebelled against him. So the Lord is the one who has called them to be a people. They would not exist apart from him. But his people who exist because of him have rebelled against him. They have rebelled against the one who called them and made them a people. So the Lord, in verse two, who would be a father to his people must now be a judge against his people because of their rebellion against him. So what is it that they've done? Verse three begins to tell us a little bit about it. The ox knows its owner, its owner, I'm sorry, and the donkey, its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Three things to notice about this, about the ox and the donkey. So oxen and donkeys, they know three things. They know who they belong to, they know who they are there for, and they know who they depend on. This is natural and good, especially in a farming or agricultural type setting. If you have oxen and donkeys who don't know that kind of thing, they're not going to be very productive or be very useful to you. So they know who they belong to, who they are there for, and who they depend upon. This was supposed to be the way of Israel in relation to their God and one who they could know as father. They were called to know who they belong to, who they were there for, and who they depend upon. Yet... They have given themselves over to, thinking they belong to, other gods, serving their purposes, worshiping them and honoring them as they seek their own desires, as they seek to satisfy their own passions, and they give themselves over to sin. They don't live dependent upon God, but they live dependent upon what they can do and what they can accomplish and what they think the gods can provide for them as they seek to satisfy their own desires. Look at verse 4, just the beginning of it, before we even notice what it says, that word ah. Uh, to, to paraphrase Calvin there, that word ah kind of gets to two different things, astonishment and sorrow. And we could say, we could put that together and say this, the Lord has a type of astonished sorrow at the rebellion of his people. So for you parents or grandparents, you would know what this is like, children, children, that you have reared and brought up, that you have loved and cared for, to to see them rebel and give themselves over to sin and, and to walk away from the Lord. Just the sadness that comes from that, the astonished sorrow that comes. That's what the Lord is describing here as he says, Ah, this people, these children, there's an astonished sorrow at what they have done. So then he begins the accusations in the courtroom. But before he gives the accusations, notice four gracious identity markers that he gives. He has four gracious identity markers for these people. These are there to emphasize just how deadly, how wicked, how rebellious their sin truly is. The four identity, gracious identity markers are this, nation, people, offspring, and children. Israel is a nation called into existence by God, only existent because of God, and notice their condition. They are sinful. They are filled up with sin. They do not look like God's people, but they look like the pagan nations around them, not like the people that God called them to be to glorify him by keeping his commands and law, but they are filled up with sin. Secondly, they're a people only a people because God made them a people. They are made heavy, they are weighed down by iniquity. That word there, iniquity, it's getting at not just that they're doing wrong things, but rather in their very natures, they are perverse, wicked in all their ways. That's God's people. Thirdly, they are offspring. So here Isaiah uses the language of promise. So remember back to our studies in Genesis as God comes and makes promises to the patriarchs, and he talks about how to Abraham specifically, how through your offspring the nations would be blessed, as I bless you. So these offspring of the Lord, uh, they are now offspring of evildoers. Look at the look at the turn that's happened. They are the result of sinfulness. Fourthly, they are children. Children to be in a special relationship with the God of the universe. And what have they done? They deal corruptly. All of their dealings are corrupt, polluted by sin. Everything they do. And what have they done? Verse 4, the end of it. They have forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel. And one of the things we see here is this is not just a one-time deal that they accidentally messed up once and now they're in this position what we're seeing here is this is a sustained rejection of God's people. They have rejected the one who called them, formed them, made them, made them to be his children. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing the height of the blessing that they were called to enjoy, and that's given to reveal just the depths of their sinfulness and their wickedness, that they have spurned those blessings. As they were called to know and be known by the Lord, they have rejected Him. What's the result of this? They are utterly estranged. Ephesians 2 gives this type of language to the Gentiles, as we are strangers to the covenants, strangers to hope, to the promises of God. And Isaiah is using this language here of God's people, They are utterly estranged. As they were called to know and be known by the Lord, they are now as strangers to the Lord. They've rejected knowing the Lord. So why do we then as believers, why do we as believers often feel like strangers to God? So I think certainly part of the reason why we often feel like strangers to the Lord or distant to the Lord is this, is is that we are still in this world people who live by faith, And not by sight yet. And so, because we're just weak and broken and needy, as we live by faith and not by sight yet, we struggle. It's very natural to struggle in the faith. We see that in Scripture. We see that in the testimony of, of people from times past. And we see that in the testimony of the people here today that we struggle. But I think even more pressing, so much, so much of the time, why we feel strangers to the Lord is actually because of our sinfulness against Him. So instead of living in accordance with who we are and who we are called to be, we actually live like the nation around us. We live like the people of the world. We are called into a special and unique relationship with the Lord, yet instead of living in that identity, what is most real about us, who we are in Christ Jesus, we live according to the flesh and its desires, thinking that that is most real. But that's the things, those those are things that are fading, that lead to death. They're not real. They're not true. They're not lasting. And so, so many times in the Christian faith, we feel like strangers. And we feel like strangers because we don't live in accordance with who we truly are in him. Verses five through eight, it reveals the state that the people are in because of their sinfulness. So the state their sin has left them in. But as the Lord begins to tell them about the state that they're in, before he does so, he asks them two questions. So why continue to be struck down? Why continue to rebel? The Lord is saying, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to continue down this path. Why do you you continue to do it? So what's the answer? The whole head is sick. The heart is faint. There is no soundness in them. They are bruised and beaten and wounded by their sin, yet they continue in their sin. The people then, because of that, they lie desolate, and they continue in their rebellion. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, he showed that as sin has its way in, in mankind, it distorts particularly our reason and our will. So sin has a way with us where it distorts our ability to think rightly. And then as it distorts our will, it distorts our passions, our emotions, our affections, our ability to to desire the right path in life. Sin distorts everything about us. So we often wonder why it is that Our loved ones, or why people who who claim to know the Lord, why it is that they continue down just nonsensical paths, why they choose to do things that seem so contrary to who they are. It seems like there is no sound reasoning, no no sound feeling within them or affections within them. And why is it? Why is that true? It's because sin distorts everything. It distorts our ability to reason and think rightly, it distorts our will and emotions. So we see that in our children as they do things that just perplex us, or we see that in a spouse that acts contrary to vows that are made and contrary to love that has been faithfully shown for so many years, or we see that in ourselves as we look in the mirror, as we are left despondent and confused over our own sinful choices. It's like we wake up. From a haze or a fog and we think what what on earth have i been doing why do i continue to do the things that i'm doing this makes no sense but sin distorts and ultimately sin destroys so when healing is available when healing is available when a way out of sin is visible the path of sin is frequently chosen our ability to think and feel and desire right are distorted. And so we do the very things that go against who we are and who we are created to be. Sin never delivers on its promises. Sin promises life and blessing and pleasures forevermore. Yet sin leaves individuals, families, churches, and nations desolate. Sin destroys. Uh, verse 9, it, I don't know why verse 9. It doesn't make sense. If we were right in Isaiah, it doesn't make sense. But the Lord is gracious. It says, If the Lord of hosts had done what he had every right to do, Israel would be just like Sodom. Israel would be just like Gomorrah. They would be wiped out. And the Lord has every right to do so. Yet the Lord freely chooses to be merciful, gracious, and patient with his people, faithful where they are unfaithful so merit it says what we deserve and it says one thing and that's judgment but the lord's mercy it says another how scripture confronts us we can never dream up a god like this that would show this kind of mercy yet god shows himself to be gracious and merciful in ways we can never guess or imagine him to be As Israel is in exile under the Babylonians, the author of Lamentation says this in Lamentations 3.22. Everybody knows the verse, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This verse is given to God's people in the midst of exile. In the midst of judgment for their sin, the Lord's people aren't waking up every morning to sip on their coffee and do their devotions to the Lord, and that's where they stumble upon this truth, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. No, they are given this truth in exile, in judgment for their continual, sustained rejection of the Lord. That's when the Lord comes and says and does something and reveals himself to be a God that we could never imagine or dream him up to be. A God far beyond our comprehension. Mercy, steadfast love, precisely because that's the kind of love and mercy that you need. So, Isaiah says, If the Lord... If the Lord had done what we deserve him to do, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, wiped out, ended. The sad spiritual state that we get in verse 10 through 15 of Israel is that they are like Sodom and Gomorrah. Their spiritual state is such that they actually are like Sodom and Gomorrah. As we went through our study in Genesis, we are confronted with those people and just how wicked they are. It is not pleasant to read about. Yet, here, God's people are being told that their spiritual condition, in their spiritual condition, they are just like the people of Sodom, just like the people of Gomorrah. They think they have something to boast about? No, certainly not. Their spiritual state is like this. So, what do we see then about their spiritual state? What is it that they are doing? Notice what the Lord brings against his people he details out what is so abhorrent to him. Israel has become a people that continues in outward forms of worship while their hearts remain far from him. So they are coming to seek the face of their God, and while they do so, they are trampling on his courts. They are bringing vain offerings. They continue on with the religious rituals of the law, but what's the Lord's response to it? He hates it. He detests it. So why are they going through all these religious activities while their hearts are far from him? Why are they going through with all of this religious performance, with all of these religious rituals? Why are they doing it if they're living in continual, sustained rejection of God? They are going to manipulate and earn and keep favor. They don't want God. They want what they can get from him. It's why Israel pursues false gods of the pagans. They do whatever they think will benefit him. We just went through 1 Kings in Sunday school not too long ago. Elijah, as he confronts the people of Israel, Elijah calls Israel together as they're on Mount Carmel, and he looks at the people and he says, why do you continue to limp to and fro between the false gods and between the God of Israel? Choose one, yet you keep going back and forth. Why? to serve your own purposes, to try and manipulate the Lord and get from God what you want. You don't love the Lord, you just want what he can provide. The Lord gives us metaphors to describe his hatred and disgust at what they are doing. It says this, the worship wearies him, it burdens him. Their worship has become even more sin against God. So not only are they sinning against God, but now their worship to God is actually sin as well. And it becomes another thing that the Lord in his patience and faithfulness to his people is burdened by or has to carry. The offenses against God continue to pile up, now even in the form of God-ordained worship. So if God has commanded this, why is he not delighted in it? We're told their hands are full of blood. Everything they do is for self, not for God. Everything is done to go through with doing it, but not actually to please and honor the Lord. One commentator put it this way, that when religious life, when religious life and activities are devoid of godliness, it is abhorrent to the Lord. Lest we think we can escape this, the New Testament speaks of just this thing as well. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 through 26. He says this, "You've heard that it said that you shall not murder, but then he goes on to say, if you have anger, bitterness in your heart and in your words towards people, it's sinful. The Lord detests it. It's worthy of hell." It's worthy of judgment. And he goes on to say, Don't come worship. Don't be bringing your offerings before the Lord when you've got this sinfulness in your heart. When you've got this bitterness and resentment towards your brother and towards your sister. Don't come worship me when you hate my people. When your hearts are full of sin. James in James chapter 3 talks about how out of our mouths comes both blessing of the Lord And cursing. And he says, it must not be so. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, this is no problem that's unique to Israel in Isaiah 1. So, how do we often bring detestable forms of worship to the Lord? Externally, we do all the things that we should, but internally, there is anger and bitterness towards a brother. There is lust in our eyes. There is gossip in our mouths. There is foolishness in our minds. Our social media presence is devoid of love and mercy towards people. Our lives that are lived out during the week, whether in our actions or in our hearts and minds, they reveal that we are so often people who go through many religious activities but are devoid of true godliness. The Lord is not pleased with mere externalities the lord desires our love and our love in this way all heart our soul all mind and all strength so the sad irony of all of this that we see in 10 through 15 is this is that the lord gives these religious rituals or these forms of worship to bless The Lord gives to His church religious activities like singing, like praying, like baptism, like communion, like sitting under the Word. He gives those activities to His people for their good, to enjoy Him. Yet our enjoyment of those things is hindered because in our hearts and in our minds is hate, bitterness, resentment and all kinds of other sins, as we bring those to worship. We so often treat these religious activities that we participate in on Sundays, we treat them as ways to earn God's favor rather than just enjoying Him. In verses 16 and 17, we see this. The judge who's calling his people to account, he gives them a way out. Hey, you're in this state Let me give you a way out of it. You ready for it? Okay. (laughs) He gives nine commands. Nine commands is a way out of the mess that they are in spiritually. He says this. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from the deeds you are doing. Cease to do evil. Learn to do what is good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Please plead the widow's cause. In a word... You could say that the Lord is saying this to His people, which He's been saying for all of Scripture. Be holy, be pure, be clean, unstained by sin. Be holy, doing good, seeking justice in an unjust world, taking care of the broken and needy and hurting, caring for the least of these. Be holy as God is holy." The Lord cares about the affairs of this world. And he expects his people to live in a way that glorifies and honors him. He expects his people to be holy. So that happens both in the heart and as what's in the heart is then lived out. So if Israel is to truly be God's children, a nation that is blessed and is a blessing to others, they must be holy. You want out of the mess you're in? Be holy. Are we not called to the same thing? Are we not called to be holy? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you want to enter the kingdom? Your righteousness must, must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Do you want to know the love of the Lord? Be holy and perfect as he is holy and perfect. Do you want to avoid hearing from the Lord, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you want to avoid hearing that? And be holy. Be holy before the Lord. If you see injustice, seek justice. You see broken and hurting and needy people, provide for them. This is pleasing to the Lord. Our love for the Lord is shown and evidenced in how we love others. Simple enough, right? Simple, easy, maybe not so much. So in verse 18... We're given a promise. Before the promise, the Lord says this. Come, let's reason together. Let's talk this over. Here's my case against you. Here's what you have done. Here's what you have become. What do you have to say to all this? Here's here's these simple nine commands, nothing new, things I've been commanding you since the beginning of you as a people. Here, do these things. So what do you have to say to this, Israel? Israel? What do you have to say to this, church? The answer would be something like, well, nothing. We, we have nothing to say to this, right? So what hope does Israel have? What hope do we have? None. Israel and we are sick from head to toe with sin. There is no true soundness of mind and heart What hope do we have of cleansing ourselves and becoming holy people so that we can come back to the Lord? What hope do we have to say? What do we have to say to the Lord? Nothing. The answer is nothing. So the Lord follows that up with stating what He, what He is going to do for His people. He gives a promise. Though their sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Notice the metaphors that are used here, snow and wool. They are already white, clean, pure. They aren't made that way, they just are that way. So this is what God is promising to do for Israel. This is what God is promising to do for his people. He is not promising to improve their state. He is not promising to take them from bad to good. He is coming and he is going to make them into something new altogether. He is going to make them into a new creation. He is going to take people who are dead and make them alive. He is giving them a completely new nature. As the Lord levels his judgment against his people for profaning his holy name in Ezekiel chapter 36 as they have profaned his name among the nations, he doesn't say, I'm going to remove my name from you because you're an embarrassment to me, because of your continual sinful rejection of me, but rather he says, no, I'm actually going to come to you and do even more for you. Your heart is a heart of stone that doesn't want me, doesn't desire me, and can't live in a way that's pleasing to me. So I'm gonna give you a new heart. I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh that wants you desires you or that wants the Lord and desires the Lord that wants to live in a way that is righteous and not only will I give you a new heart and make you a new people but I'm actually going to take my spirit and place him inside of you to empower you to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord that's what he promises to do for his people make them something completely new so be holy that's what the Lord says. But who amongst us can? God will make his way for a people, for his people. He will make them new. And according to Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the work that he begins to do, he will bring it to completion. Verse 18 does not belong here. It doesn't belong. It's nothing that we could dream up. We do not deserve mercy And Scripture says, precisely, you don't. It's the very people who don't deserve mercy that need it and find it in the Lord. The Lord is not manipulated into giving His mercy. The Lord is not in heaven having His arm twisted to show His people mercy and love and grace and patience. In Exodus 32 through 34, we, we have the account of Israel and the golden calf. If they, as they have just been brought out of uh, slavery in Egypt, as they are led to the mountain, they make this golden calf, and they worship and they celebrate. This is the God that's brought us up out of slavery. And the Lord has every right, as he desires to do, to wipe his people out for their sinfulness. Every right. He would have been just and fair in doing so. Yet Moses prays to him, and the Lord shows Moses favor. And then Moses, he asks of the Lord, if you have shown me favor, if I am favored in your eyes, reveal to me your glory. And the Lord says, I will reveal to you my glory. But the way that he reveals his glory, he says in Exodus 33, is by revealing his goodness. And the way that he reveals his goodness, it happens in Exodus 34, The way he reveals his goodness is by speaking. And this is what the Lord would say. I am the Lord. I am gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding, not impoverished, but abounding in steadfast love. He will be just, and he will remember iniquities to the third and the fourth generation. Notice, the third and the fourth generation, but he will be faithful to the thousandth generation. That is goodness that we cannot wrap our heads around. And in fact, we need, and thankfully, for what the Lord has done for us, we will get all eternity to try to do just that. To sinful people justly deserving judgment, God shows himself to be this type of God, merciful, gracious, abounding and steadfast love. And so in verses 19 and 20, we're given an invitation. If they are willing to come and willing to obey, this is what they get to do, feast. They get to feast. They get to eat of the good of the land. But in verse 20, if they refuse and rebel... They will be feasted upon. They will be devoured. Why? Because sin devours. And the Lord's judgment will devour sin and all who remain in it. The Lord will not ignore sin. But if his people turn, they will feast. They will feast and be satisfied on the goodness of God. Ultimately, we know that Israel will be judged. They will go into exile. But even the judgment that Israel experiences, as you continue to read the Old Testament, it isn't given in the full extent that they deserve. They are not wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. While they deserve to be treated in that way, the Lord shows his people mercy. The the Lord does not spend his wrath fully on his people the Lord would spend his wrath elsewhere. What an invitation we have from the Lord. The Lord has spoken. Return, come and feast. Don't be feasted upon any longer by your sin. So the question remains for us. Will we remain in our deadly self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, or will we turn to the Lord? recognizing that because of what he has done for us, we belong to him. We are to live for him. We are to live dependent upon him. The danger remains for righteous people. Righteous people are in danger. We think we have it figured out while our hearts are far from him. We pride ourselves in our religious performances while our hearts are prideful self-sufficient, self-righteous, full of bitterness, anger, resentment, full of feelings of superiority over the people we disagree with. And the Lord says this is wickedness. It is detestable in the sight of a holy God. Our prayer has to be this. May we see our sin rightly. When that happens, we will see His love, His grace, and His goodness more clearly. So let me close with a thought on Advent and how it relates to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1 paints a very bleak picture of the way things have been, are, and will be in a fallen and broken world as a result of sin. But Advent represents a great interruption by God himself as he chooses to come and restore the most sinful, of sinners, the weakest of the weak, the most unfaithful of the unfaithful, the lowliest of the low. The Lord interrupts the unnatural way of this sinful world to be the very embodiment of grace and mercy. And he would do that by taking on himself our sinful pollution Our abhorrent, grievous sin and self-righteousness that kills, shames, and destroys us, leaving us desolate. The incarnation celebrates the coming of Jesus, the Son of God. It celebrates the Word become flesh. So what we see is the goodness, grace, and mercy that's talked about in Exodus 34, it takes on human form. And what does Jesus come and do? How he despises and hates sin, he will not ignore it. Yet, with the joy in doing his father's will, which was to bring sinners to himself, he goes to the cross, carrying his people's sins to rescue rebels, save sinners, and make dead people alive. And he endures the cross To do just that. To what degree does God love us? That He would robe Himself in human flesh, take on the form of a servant, and lay down His life on a cross after being beaten, mocked, tortured, and humiliated. We need Advent because we are hopelessly lost in our sin. If Jesus doesn't come to save us, we remain as we are. Praise God for his goodness, goodness that we will spend eternity living in. May we do so more and more now. Let's pray. Most holy God, we thank you for your word. Because the God that you reveal yourself to be is not a God that we could conjure up, not a God that we could make up, not a God that we could dream of, Lord God, you are holy, holy, holy in every way. Lord God, would you open up our eyes to see just how detestable and grievous our sin is. Give us grace to realize that our sin leads only to destruction and will leave us desolate. But give us grace to know that you delight to save sinners. So give us grace to come in humility and repentance, bowing down before you, knowing that you delight to save your people. You delight to raise up those who are bowed down low, to seat them with your Son in the heavenly places. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus, the very embodiment of your goodness, your grace, your mercy. To, towards your people. Would you give us grace to see Jesus more clearly? We pray all of this in your name. Amen.
1: As we turn to the, the Lord's table in the ordinance of communion, keep your, uh, your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 1 and then also turn to Matthew chapter 26. sitting under Isaiah 1 is uh, brings a certain kind of heaviness. It's, uh, it is almost a burden in and of itself to sit and to listen in half a dozen, a dozen different ways the Lord tell you the same thing over and over again, that you are riddled with sin and corruption in and of yourself. And we didn't even get to the second half of chapter 1, which continues on that same theme. Even after uh, the offer of mercy and forgiveness. But I want to draw your attention um, to the, the last couple of verses that, uh, that JT had for us in uh, verses 19 and 20. The appeal that God makes to His people after demonstrating and revealing to them that they are thoroughly sinful is to find cleansing and purification, and he says in verse 19, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. The problem is, is that later on in Isaiah in chapter 53, we find out that Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the people that they have not consented, they have not obeyed, even after warning. So Isaiah says in Isaiah 53:6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way. And the Lord has caused our iniquity to fall on this suffering servant. We did not consent. We did not obey even when the call was given to us. The evidence of that for God's people is that they would not feast. They would not eat. They would not enjoy fellowship at home with God. But having said that, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land not obeying, not eating, not feasting, then sets us up for what we find in Matthew chapter 26. Turn there. Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. What the disciples probably could not even begin to imagine is that even a simple little statement like that, take and eat, would have been thought of just very generically. I'm gonna take this piece of bread that, that Christ has given and I'm gonna eat it. But in the in the language and the verbiage of Scripture, what Christ is offering to them is what they could never find for themselves. All the way through the Old Covenant, He had offered them life and blessing. He had offered them a feast that they rejected because of their sin. And yet, in spite of the fact that they have been disobedient, God in His grace and mercy sent His Son to be the perfect, obedient Son that they never were. And then He, because of His obedience, can turn to them and say, You starving, deprived people, take and eat. When we eat, even in this simple reenactment at communion, the Lord's Supper, what we are reminding ourselves of is that not a single one of us were obedient so that the Lord owed us anything. But because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, we get the riches and the blessing, the feast of reward that can only come through perfect obedience. And the clearest example and demonstration of that blessing, of that fullness to take and to eat is in the person of Jesus Christ himself, who says, God will come to you because you won't come to him. And he will give to you something to eat because you will not obey to eat for your own good. That is how good and gracious and merciful God is. Men, if you would come forward to help distribute the elements As the men come forward, they will uh, walk up the aisles and hand out a packaged wafer and a drink. If you would just hold that and not partake of it until we can share it together. I would encourage you to sit and quietly reflect on what the Lord has done for you in His sacrifice of His own Son. And I'll bring us back together for a time of partaking in just a moment. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, Take, eat, this is my body. He goes on to say, When he presented to them the cup, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So as you take the bread, the wafer, take and eat, remembering that he gave his righteousness so that we, as disobedient, rebellious children could be reconciled and rewarded. And then if you'll take the cup, take and and drink, realizing that he did not reconcile and reward us by merely turning a blind eye to our sin, but by actually cleansing us from our sin to make us clean. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the Lord's Supper, for this ceremonial act by which we remind ourselves of your goodness and your grace to us. Help us to walk as children of the light who have been washed and made clean given new hearts and renewed minds to serve you gladly and with joy, remembering that we do not come to you with anything that we have to offer in ourselves, but we come to you with confidence because of the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we close with that same phrase, hallelujah, Jesus is our life. Amen. Let's, let's close in that. Hallelujah.